If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. If you were here last week, I just want to say you sat through probably the most technical sermon that I think I've ever preached. One of the most technical passages in the Bible, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. The 70 weeks of Daniel, we did a lot of math. I checked it all with Ben. He said that it was, it was accurate. So Ben signed off on it. It was good math. Uh, if you have any questions about it, we spent uh, a little bit of time in our small group on Wednesday night just talking about Daniel 9, because I know that there are a lot of questions that come out of that text. So if you have any questions, always feel free to talk with me after the service. I'd love to talk with you about that portion of scripture. But this morning we're in Daniel 10, and I have some good news and some bad news for you. The good news is that there is no math in this text. That's, praise the Lord, good news. <laughs> Boo says Ben and the other math people. The bad news is that we are now officially down to the last section of Daniel. You might say, how? If you know Daniel has 12 chapters, we're in 10. How are we down to the last section? The reason why is because there's one more prophecy that's given. It's Daniel chapter 11, one more prophecy. And that prophecy is just kind of a prelude to that prophecy in Daniel chapter 10. And there's a postscript to that prophecy in Daniel chapter 12. So basically, 10 is the prelude, 11 is the prophecy, 12 is the postscript, and then we're done. There's one main section left, and then this amazing study that we've enjoyed together of Daniel will be over. We're coming to the last of four prophecies, of four uh, visions that Daniel has been given, and prophetic announcements that he's been given. And when we come to the last one, one of the first questions that jumps out right away is why do we need chapter 10 as a prelude to the prophecy given in chapter 11? We've already been given three prophecies. We already know how to read through the prophecies. In fact, as we go through chapter 11, we're going to take it almost in one entire Sunday because we know a lot of what's already gone on. We know a lot of what's being described here. So why does such a long introduction to this prophecy happen here? Why is it needed? What does it teach us? No word of God is wasted. It's here for a reason. And this morning, I want to go discover what that reason is. I want to figure that out together. Let's figure out the reason for why Daniel chapter 10 is here as a prelude for the prophecy given in chapter 11. Let's read Daniel 10 verses 1 through 9, and then we'll ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Daniel writes, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. And the word was true and one of great conflict, but he understood the word and had an understanding of what had appeared. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were fulfilled. And on the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked. And behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose loins were girded with a belt of fine gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. 
Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision that appeared, but the men who were with me did not see the vision that appeared. Nevertheless, a great terror fell on them and they ran away to hide themselves. So I alone remained and saw this great vision that appeared, yet no might remained in me for my outward splendor turned to a a deathly pallor. I retained no might. I heard the sound of his words And as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Father, these words are riveting. They they hold us to this vision that Daniel sees. And even as we sung, beholding our God, we want to behold the glory of God in a similar way that Daniel did. May we not walk out of here unaffected by your glory. May we be interrogated by this text. May it see deep into our hearts and show us a true picture of who we are. God, as we pray every Lord's Day, straight from Psalm 119, verse 18, Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we'd behold wonderful things from your law. Apart from you doing that work of opening our eyes and allowing us to see, we will not understand. So, Father, be gracious to us, not because of anything we have done or ever could do. We are not good enough. We are not moral enough. We are not strong enough. We are a broken, needy people coming to you as beggars, pleading with you for mercy and grace to show us Christ. And we do that expectantly. We are excited to see how you will respond today. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Last week, we looked at four questions of the text. We asked four different questions of Daniel 9, 24 through 27. We asked, what are the 70 weeks? What will happen as a result of those weeks? What's the progression of the weeks? How do they play out? And when is the last week and what happens in it? We asked four different questions of that text. This morning, since we are out of math land, and since we're back into a a section that will be much easier for us to navigate, I want to flip that question around. Instead of asking questions of the text, I want to let the text ask us questions this morning. Namely, three of them. Three questions from this text that I think will interrogate our hearts. And you'll see them as we go through it. So verse one, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Third year of Cyrus is 536 BC. The events of chapter 10 are happening two years after the events of chapter nine. And just, by the way, just for an outline purpose, for uh, an understanding of the way the book of Daniel unfolds, in chapter 7 through 12, which are the prophetic sections of the book of Daniel, remember Daniel 1 through 6 is narrative, 7 through 12 is prophecy. In chapter 7 through 12, there are four different visions that Daniel has, and each of them are dated by the timing of the kings that were in charge during the visions. Two of the visions come when Belshazzar is reigning, Two of the visions come when Cyrus is reigning. Two of the visions for Belshazzar are the first year of his reign and the third year of his reign. Two of the visions for Cyrus are the first year of his reign and the third year of his reign. So it's very helpful just to understand those four different visions. They're about 13 years apart between the visions that are happening between Belshazzar and Cyrus. And here we come to the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. You remember Persia took over Babylon. Babylon was reigning, now Persia's reigning, and Cyrus is the king, otherwise known as Darius in Daniel, is the king. 
By the way, extra biblical historical accounts give us this information. And I've given you a couple of those um, different records from extra biblical history. But there's another one that I want to give you that the defeat of Babylon three years earlier from this point of the third year of Cyrus is recorded for us in something called the Cyrus Cylinder, which is a clay cylinder with Akkadian text written around it. It's in the British Museum and it was discovered in 1879 and it details how Cyrus took over Babylon. So this isn't just a biblical account if people think that this is just a made-up story, this is just some fairy tale. No, this is historically accurate and it's backed up and confirmed by other extra-biblical sources. So we have our setting, the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. A word is revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. So why does Daniel write this way? Why does he say it's me writing? And he gives his Babylonian name, that Babylonian name that was given to him decades earlier. We, we don't know. I think the reason why, though, is because Daniel is probably in his mid to late 80s. He's an older man, and he's still writing, still receiving prophecies. And I think he's wanting us to remember, I've been here through the whole time. I've been here through Babylon, been here through Persia, through that transition of power. And if you remember, he was given that name, Belteshazzar, way earlier in his reign with Babylon. So he's saying, guys, it's still me. I'm, st I'm still the guy. I'm still writing. I'm still here, and I'm still documenting what God's given to me. You can see, he says, that the word that was given to him was revealed. It was revealed, and he says, I understand it. I, I understood what the word was. So we're told he's given a prophecy, and he understands it, but we won't get that prophecy until chapter 11. But we're told we have the message, and we're told that he understands it, but also it was given to him to understand. In the middle of verse one, he understood the word and had an understanding of what had appeared. Literally, it's an, an understanding came to him or was given to him. So he did the work to understand it. And then God graciously revealed the understanding of that vision to him. It's just like our study in 1 John this week. Remember 1 John chapter one, verses one through four, that life was manifested to us. If God didn't do the work of giving us the revelation of Christ, we couldn't figure him out on our own. We couldn't find him. It's gracious of God to do that. It's a gift of God to do that. So Daniel says, I was given this. I did the work to understand it, but I couldn't have understood it without God giving it to me and revealing it to me. Last thing in verse one, the word was true. And it was one of great conflict. It's true. It's going to come to pass. And it's full of great conflict. And there's a lot of ways that that can be taken. When we read through the vision and uh, the prophecy in Daniel chapter 11, you'll see it's all about conflict and the political wars that are going to happen. But I think it's also, at the end of chapter 10, we're going to see that it took a great conflict to get the vision to Daniel. It took a, a war, a spiritual war with angels and demons to get the message to Daniel. So I think it's all of the above. It's all of the conflicts. This message is full of conflict because it's about the conflict that the people of God are going to experience in the future. And it required a great conflict from the angels to deliver the message to Daniel. It's all of those conflicts. And yet, again, throughout this book, we've seen this message. We're shown that the future of God's people will involve suffering. There's conflict yet to come. And yet again, we're told that not to break us down, but to build us up, to brace us up for the future. So we get the setting, we get what's going on. And then we're going to work backwards. In those days, verse 2, in those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. 
He's in mourning. He's sorrowful for three weeks. He didn't taste, he didn't eat any tasty food. He's fasting. He's about 85, mid to late 80s. He's an older gentleman and he's fasting. He's not eating any food. And he specifically says it's no no tasty food, no meat or wine. Remember, he's second in command. He's the prime minister working with Cyrus. And he has been given all of the the most tasty choice meat out there. And he says, I'm not going to eat any of it. He doesn't eat any of it. He also has no ointment during the entire three weeks. He's fasting from food. He's fasting from taking care of himself and the harsh uh, heat that he'd be living through in the Middle East. He would need that ointment to soothe his skin, to refresh, to protect it. And he says, I'm not going to enjoy that. I'm going to fast from it. And so my question is, why is he mourning? Why is he sorrowful? Why is he fasting? What is he distraught about? Some people would say that he's distraught because of what he just learned in chapter 9. That the future of Israel is going to be, there's going to, you know, the temple's going to be rebuilt again, but then the Messiah is going to be cut off and the, the city's going to be destroyed, the temple's going to be destroyed, and then there's going to be a great conflict at the very end. And he's distraught. And that's possible, but that vision was two years ago. I think he's moved on from that vision. Why is he mourning now? Well, if we're to harmonize the Bible, and you can just write in here Ezra, Ezra 1 through 4. If we're going to harmonize, we're going to zip the Bible up together chronologically. Ezra 1 begins with the first year of Cyrus's reign where he makes a decree to send the Israelites back to Jerusalem. And he does that. But you remember before he did that, Daniel had gotten Jeremiah's scroll, had read through it and had said, I think that we're about to go back. Based off of the 70-year prophecy, we're going to be in exile for 70 years. We're going to go back to Jerusalem. We're going to go back to Israel. We're right there. We're right on the cusp of going back. So Daniel had studied and he had taken that. You remember Josephus tells us he took that message to Cyrus. It was also in the very first year of Cyrus that Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. You remember that? There was a ban on praying. I bet Daniel's praying for that very thing. God, when are we going to go back home? So We don't know the exact timing of these things, but I like to think that Daniel reads Jeremiah, first year of Cyrus's reign. Daniel says, God's going to let us go back. We're almost there. Seven years are almost up. He goes to Cyrus. He says, hey, Cyrus, look, this is about you. We should go home. Cyrus goes, "Eh, I don't really think so. There's a ban on praying. Daniel's praying. God changed Cyrus's heart. He's thrown in the lion's den. Cyrus sees Daniel preserved by Yahweh. Daniel's brought out of the lines then, alive. And Cyrus says, hey, remind me again, what was that thing that you showed me about your God? Because I want to do whatever he says to do. I want to do that. Daniel says, it was about sending us back home. Can you send us back home? Yep, go. And Ezra chapter two tells us that in that first year of Cyrus, almost 50,000 Jewish people go home from Persia uh, back to Jerusalem. It's 42,360 individuals go back home. So they go back in the first year of Cyrus's reign. Remember this, Daniel chapter 10 is the third year. What takes place between the first year of Cyrus's reign and the third year of Cyrus's reign in Ezra, back home in Jerusalem? Well, Ezra chapter three tells us. Ezra chapter three and four tells us that the Jews that go back begin rebuilding Jerusalem, rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the temple, and then they stop. Ezra 3.3 says they were terrified of everyone that was around them. 
Ezra chapter 4 says that they completely cease all of the work on the, the city and the temple. They just stop. We're done. We give up. In addition to that, we know from history that in the third year of Cyrus's reign, he went abroad into the known world, left his son to act as his regent. And his son, in response to his correspondence from the enemies of Israel surrounding Israel, issued a formal decree to the Israelites saying, we graciously let you go back home, but you need to stop building because everybody around you is angry at you. And so they do. And Daniel, being the prime minister, had access to all of these reports. He had access to everything. And you can see the timing of this, verse 4, on the 24th day of the first month. So the 24th day of the first month, this is the month of Nisan, 24th day. What happens in the month of Nisan? It's the, the month where Passover takes place. So I think Daniel's thinking, remember Passover is the celebration, the commemoration of God preserving his people through the Exodus, taking them out of an oppressive land and into their homeland. I think Daniel's thinking we should be back home flourishing at home and yet God's people are home scared to death, similar to back with Moses and Joshua. We, we can't go into that land. It's filled with these giants. And we don't know if we can make it. And Daniel's looking going, this should be our first Passover celebrated in our promised land with our people growing and flourishing and yet they're timid and scared and they've just quit. This is why I think Daniel's mourning. This is why he's weeping. He's going, God, I, I thought we had a plan here that you were going to send your people back and we were going to start our city. And then I was going to bring all the other Jews back to the promised land. God's people aren't doing the work of rebuilding God's city. In fact, it'll take 22 years to finish building the temple itself from 538 BC to 516 BC. God's going to have to send Haggai, the prophet, to go to the Jews and say, hey, get to work. Don't stop. But Daniel's mourning over the fact that currently, in the third year of Cyrus's reign, the Jews have all but given up and they've quit. And that leads to the first question. Remember, we're asking, we're letting the text ask us questions this morning. And here's the first question that I think the text is asking you and me. What is your reaction when you hear of God's people not doing what God says? What's your reaction? What's my reaction when you and I hear of God's people not doing what God has said? How do you respond when you hear that Christians around the world are not doing what God says? How do you respond when you hear that Christians in America are not doing what God has said to do? What is our response? Some common reactions. Self-righteousness. We look down on others and say, well, if I were in your shoes, I would be doing that the right way. Bitterness. You are the kind of people that give Christians a bad name. Deconstruction. It's a huge buzzword today where we just say, you know what? This must mean Christianity doesn't work and therefore I'm out. Just walk away. Something that I see a lot is people starting new churches. This church is doing it wrong and they're never going to get their act together. So I'm going to start my own church where everything goes perfectly. And guess what? Those, those churches rarely last. Some people don't even get upset at all. Some people get super angry when they see God's people not doing what God has said to do. Some people just don't care. Well, par for the course, who cares? What's Daniel's response when he sees God's people not doing what God has said? 
It's mournful, sorrowful prayer. I, I just don't know if that's our knee-jerk response when we see God's people failing to do what God's called us to do. Mournful, sorrowful prayer. Are you sorrowful when you hear that people aren't doing what God has said? And what do you do in response? In your sorrow, in your mourning, do you pray? Do you pout? Are you angry? Are you indifferent? I hear people a lot these days just say something to the effect that, you know what, it's time to pull in the oars, float down the river, because there's just no use in trying to kick against it. Just go with the flow. Daniel says, no, we're going to work hard. We're going to pray hard. We're going to work hard. We're going to pray hard. Notice he says, verse four, while he was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris. He's by the bank of the river. That tells us geographically he's moved outside of the city and he's closer to the wilderness. He's closer to an area outside, far outside the city. And my question is, why is he out there? And again, we don't know for sure, but I like to think that he's out there yelling back at the city saying, guys, come on. Let's leave and go back to the promised land. Don't stay here. We're exiles here. We're not citizens here. Also, one question that just instantly jumps out at you when you're reading this text uh, compared with Ezra. Why didn't Daniel go back to Jerusalem? I mean, that's what he had been praying for. God, let us go back. The 70 years are up. I want to go home. Cyrus sends a decree. Daniel could have petitioned, you know what? Let me be your prime minister over there. I'll be uh, the head of command over there. I'll, I'll help the people there. But he chooses to stay. And again, we don't know why. Some people think that he's too old to make the journey. And so he says, you know what? I can't make the journey. Maybe, but he's Daniel, right? I mean, Daniel could make the journey, right? He could do it. Some people say he didn't want to have to relocate again. He was tired of having all these new regimes. He didn't, no, no, I don't take that. I don't buy that for a second. He loved Jerusalem. Remember, he was living off of liturgical time. He knew when the sacrifices would be happening and he longs to be back in Jerusalem. I think the reason why he stays back is because he wants to be the last Jew in Persia as he sees every single one of his countrymen sent back home. He's the captain who will not leave one man behind. And he says, I'm staying here until I see every last person back home. I just, I wonder if that's our attitude. A lot of times in evangelicalism, we just kind of look at ourselves. We look at our churches. We want to protect ourselves, stay kind of uh, tight and inbred here. And we don't want to really go outside of it. And we want to protect ourselves. And Daniel says, look to the body of Christ. We studied this yesterday in our men's ministry meeting. We looked at the fellowship that we have in the church, not just with people in our local church, but in the church universal. These are our brothers and sisters. We need to be praying for them and pleading with them. Get your eyes fixed on Christ. Daniel didn't want to leave anyone behind. Corey Ten Boom says it this way, quote, we never know how God's going to answer our prayers, but we can expect that he will get us involved in his plan for the answer. And if we are true intercessors, we must be ready to take part in God's work on behalf of the people for whom we pray. So Daniel easily could have said, God, I'm praying that this would happen. Cyrus writes the decree. Daniel says, that's it, I'm out of here. But Daniel says, you know what, God, I think you've sent me here. I'm placed in Persia now. 
to be a person that can get everybody out of here and sent back home. I'm staying here. I have work to do. I'm not just leaving. I'm staying here. So he prays. And you notice in verse two, as he's praying, it takes three weeks for the answer to come. It takes three weeks. Daniel's been praying. And throughout the book of Daniel, we've seen Daniel pray and his prayers be answered instantly within minutes, moments, seconds. But here it takes three weeks. Sometimes God acts quickly. But I think if you read through the Bible, I think you will find that the majority of the time he acts very slowly, very methodically. Just even in creation, uh, I don't know if you started your Bible reading in January uh, through Genesis. I started in Genesis chapter one. How does God make man and woman? He easily could have just said done. But even in the creation of man and woman, he forms man out of the dust of the ground. He doesn't just say man and woman. He puts Adam to sleep and he takes a rib and he forms the rib into the woman. He is in no panic whatsoever. He just takes his time. And we shouldn't be in a panic either because we know that our God is in control. So the first question is, what's your reaction when you hear of God's people not doing what God has said? Is it like Daniel? What is it? Second question that this text, I believe, is asking us today. Do you believe and marvel in the reality that God answers prayer? Do you believe in the reality that God answers prayer? Do you believe that? And then do you glory in it? Do you marvel in it? Are you blown away that God answers when you cry out to him? Do you believe and marvel in the reality that God answers prayer? In verse 1, we are told that God does ultimately answer this prayer. A word is given, revealed to Daniel. God answers. And then obviously the rest of the book, in chapter 11, it's God giving the answer. When was the last time that you gave thanks to God because he speaks? We worship a talking God. And he has spoken, and he's spoken with clarity. He hasn't left us alone. He's given us his word. We should be so grateful. You can tell, by the way, if you are genuinely a believer in prayer and a marveler about prayer, if you pray. Do you pray? How often do you pray? Do you pray expectantly? Do you pray with gratitude and with thanksgiving, knowing that you are heard by the God of the universe? One commentator says it this way. I love this quote. Almost everyone believes that prayer is important but there's a difference between believing that prayer is important and believing it is essential. Essential means that there are things that will not happen without prayer. Do you believe that? There are things that will not happen without prayer. One of the believer's most important tasks is the strategic work of prayer. Sinclair Ferguson, in his commentary, writes, the rebuilding of Jerusalem will involve heavy, heavy labor, action, busyness, controversy, and time-consuming activity. And God already raised up leaders in those areas, Ezra and Nehemiah and others, to do that work. What those leaders needed most was someone engaged in the hidden strategic work of prayer for the defense and the advancement of the kingdom of God. And it was apparently in this activity that Daniel was already engaged when he received a further heavenly visitation. He prayed for blessing. He would never personally witness himself. What commitment his decision to remain in Babylon displayed. Do you believe and marvel in the reality that God answers prayer? 
You, you can tell by your prayer life. Do you really believe what the psalmist says when he writes, when the righteous cry, the Lord hears. If you do believe that, you'll pray a lot more often. You'll watch expectantly for God to answer and you'll be filled with gratitude that he does. So Daniel is praying, third year of Cyrus's reign, mourning, uh, fasting, weeping over what's going on in Jerusalem, and he's crying out to God. Verse five, I lifted my eyes and I looked and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose loins were girded with a belt of pure, fine gold of Uphaz. Who is this man? He sees a man and he's blown away at what he sees. Who is this man? There's really only one of two possibilities as to who this man would, would be. And I'll tell you right off the bat, most people think it's an angel. Most people think this is an angel. And it could be. If it is, it's an unnamed angel. But I have some questions if it's an angel. If it is an angel, question number one, why isn't he named? Gabriel has already been identified and named. Michael is going to be named in this chapter. Why wouldn't this angel be named? We also know that this isn't Michael because of the language that's going to be used later in this chapter. So this isn't Michael. Michael's going to be named later. This isn't Michael. So maybe this is Gabriel, unnamed because we already know him. But if this is Gabriel, my question is why wouldn't he be named? And more specifically, why do we have this crazy description of, of Gabriel now, even though this is the third time we've seen him in the book of Daniel? Why now? All of a sudden, this seems like this should be the introduction of Gabriel. So if it is an angel, it's an unnamed angel. I have another question, and that's in Daniel chapter 12. Remember, this is one section. Daniel 10, 11, 12, one section. Go to Daniel chapter 12, verse 5. At the end of this vision being given, this prophecy being given, Daniel looks and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the Tigris, one on the other bank of the Tigris. And one said to the man dressed in linen, that's the guy we're talking about in chapter 10, this one dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river. How long will it be until the end of these wonders? So it seems like there are two angels talking, maybe Michael and Gabriel, they're talking together. And as they're talking, there's a question after the prophecy has been given in Daniel chapter 11. And they don't know the answer to that, but they ask somebody who does know the answer. And Daniel clearly tells us this person is hovering above those two angels. So we've got angels on either side of the river and someone hovering above them, the same person in Daniel chapter 10. And they say, we don't know the answer, but that guy does. So maybe this is an angel too. I don't think it is because he's going to take an oath upon himself by the living God who lives forever and ever. So this probably isn't an angel. I know that, again, just full uh, understanding here of, of the main view. The main view of this text is that this is an angel. I personally don't think it is. Um, one last reason is there seems to be a difference in what the two individuals do at the beginning of chapter 10 and the end of chapter 10. There's going to be a vision that Daniel sees, and then there's going to be somebody that's going to come touch him, talk to him, and speak to him. And I think that's a different individual. So either, again, we have two options. Either this is an unnamed angel, or, and this would be my preferred view, 
I think that this is Jesus. This is a pre-incarnate Christ. This is Jesus before he becomes human. In theology, we'd call that a Christophany. It's a, a revelation of God through the person of Christ in actual visible uh, a vision, a, a physical visible representation. Now, that wouldn't be the first time that we've seen that. That was the fourth man in the fire. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And there's a fourth guy in the fire. We said that that's probably Christ as well. Jesus with his people. So I think that th this is Christ. Whoever this person is, we can see what they're wearing. They're dressed in linen. Linen is a priestly garment. So this is a, um, a, a display, a symbol of the priestly nature of this individual. Also a display of his holiness. It's pure, it's white, it's holy. The belt is gold, a kingly color, a kingly belt. There's lightning coming out of his mouth. His eyes are flaming torches. Eyes are flaming torches, which is a representation of omniscience. He sees everything, illuminates every thought, every person. Sees right through you and through me. Feet are like burnished bronze, going, moving with holiness and purity everywhere that he goes. The sound of his words, like the sound of a multitude, like many voices or many waters, some descriptions would have. This description of this individual lines up exactly with what Ezekiel sees in Ezekiel chapter 1. Lines up exactly with what John sees in Revelation chapter 1. This is identical to what John sees as an image of Christ. He sees Jesus, the resurrected Christ, standing in front of him. And he has the exact same description. And he has the exact same response. He falls on his face before him like a dead man. I think that this is Jesus. I think this is Christ showing up to Daniel. And when Daniel sees him, verse 7, now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision appeared. But there were people around him who didn't see the vision, but they nevertheless were filled with great terror. This is so reminiscent of Saul. You remember Saul on the road to Damascus? He sees the vision, he hears the voice. Nobody else saw or heard it. They just uh, heard the thunder and then they were terrified. And they were terrified of the glory of God. Whether it's in an angel being revealed or whether it's Christ himself, which I think it is, they're terrified as they come into contact with the glory of God. They hide themselves from the glory of God. They can't even stay there. And that's why verse 8, I alone remained. I alone remained. Everybody else has fled. I'm by myself. I see this great vision and I have no more strength left in me. I fall down. My knees buckle. My outward splendor and appearance turns deathly pale. He's seen some crazy things, Daniel has. But this one brings him to a deep sleep, like that of a dead man lying on his face. Why? Because he's come into contact with the glory of God. This is the third question. First question that this text is asking us this morning. Number one, what is your reaction when you hear God's people not doing what God has said? Number two, do you believe and marvel in the reality that God answers prayer? Question number three, what do you make of the glory of God? How does his glory rest on you? What is it, how does it seem to you? How do you comprehend the glory of God? What do you feel about it? What do you make of this idea of God being incomprehensibly glorious? How does the idea of the glory of God sit in your heart and rest in your mind? I've heard stories over the years of people having 
encounters with God. And while I believe that they genuinely believe that's what they're experiencing, I have my doubts. I always tell my students when they're asking me about encounters that they hear, I always tell them I'm optimistically cynical. I want to hear it and I want to go, awesome, praise the Lord, very cool, let's take it to the Bible and see. I'm optimistically cynical. I want to hear your story, I want to discredit it, but I want to test it with the Bible. Here's just a sample of stories that I've heard over the years of people who have had encounters, quote unquote, with God, supposed encounters with God. One person told me that while they they sing in the shower, God shows up and speaks to them. And I said, oh, like you're singing and you're praying and like somehow he's responding to you. And they say, no, 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 like physically, bodily, they see him in the shower. Okay. Uh, Somebody told me here that they sit down and they eat lunch with God. And I think that's fine. Like you're practicing the presence of God. Like Brother Lawrence would say, you are are aware of God's presence and you know that you're eating in the presence of God, right? And they say, no, no, like God shows up in a body with me here and I eat with him. I've offered him my salami sandwich. I hear people talking about talking with God, chatting with him. And again, not in prayer, like, Speaking one-on-one, face-to-face, having a meal with him. I heard one person say that when they're shaving uh, in their bathroom sink, God shows up and talks to him. And they, as, as he's shaving, he sees God's face in the reflection of the mirror and he just talks to God while he's shaving. I, I, again, optimistically cynical. I want to take it back to the scriptures. And my question is, When people encounter the glory of God, what does their reaction tend to be? This isn't the experience of believers in the Bible when they encounter the glory of God. When they come into into contact with the glory of God, there is zero flippancy. You never see anyone in the Bible when God shows up say, what's up, dude? You never see that. There's no flippancy with characters in the Bible meeting God. And actually, there is. And when they are, they die. There's nothing casual about coming into contact with the glory of God. You cannot just chat with El Shaddai. In my Bible reading, I've made my way through Genesis. I'm into Exodus now. Exodus chapter 20, you remember 10 commandments right before that, Exodus 19. God tells the people of Israel, I'm going to give you rules to keep you as far away from the mountain as you possibly can be so that you don't die by coming into contact with the mountain that I'm resting on. Like literally, it's not even being in the cloud of glory, but if you're close to the mountain that I'm close to, you'll die by touching that mountain. Think of Isaiah chapter six with Isaiah seeing the glory of God. He's a prophet, probably one of the most holy, externally, one of the most holy men in all of Israel. And he sees the glory of God and he says, I'm done for. I'm cursed. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. This is a prophet speaking on behalf of God, and he says, I have unclean lips. Ezekiel chapter 1, he's terrified by the vision that he sees of the glory of God, the throne room of God, the angels flying around. Terrified. Revelation chapter 1, John, when he sees the risen Christ, falls down like a dead man. Saul is blinded by Jesus and the glory that he shows forth. And here Daniel falls down. Verse 8 says that he turns as pale as if he were dead. 
And mind you, this is a friend of God. This is someone who is called in this book three different times, a dearly loved individual, a man highly esteemed or dearly loved by God. Can you imagine what it will be like for God's enemies to come into contact with him? This is a friend of God coming into contact with the glory of God. John, the apostle, saved individual, believer in Jesus, disciple of Jesus. Seeing his best friend risen from the dead does not say, it's so great to see you again. Falls down like a dead man. That's a friend of God. That's a close companion of Christ. I just think about the people in our lives that don't know Christ on that last day, what they will experience when the glory of God shines forth to them. The bottom line is God is far greater, far more holy, far more glorious than we could ever imagine. God is so much more incomprehensibly glorious than you and I could possibly imagine. Many of you who have read R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, you'll never forget that section on Uzzah. Remember the guy who sticks his hand out to try and catch the Ark of the Covenant before it falls down. And when he touches it, he dies. And you and I look at that that text and we go, God, you need to be a little bit more gracious there because he's just trying to defend and protect the Ark where symbolically your presence is. And he doesn't want it to fall and touch the ground because the ground's dirty. And you remember what R.C. Sproul says? He says, Uzzah's main incorrect line of thinking was that he thought his hand was any cleaner than the dirt that he was trying to protect the ark from falling on. The glory of God is far beyond our comprehension and our sinfulness takes us so far away from his holiness. It's not even worth comparing. So what's your attitude regarding the glory of God? What is your attitude towards God's glory? Do you play with the idea of who God is? So many people today especially say, man, if I could just see a vision of God, then I would believe. And I would say in response, if you saw a vision of God, you would either be completely undone or you would die. Even receiving this vision is going to leave Daniel totally exhausted like a dead man. It's going to take a toll on him. Yes, because of the agony that he's going to experience uh, seeing the people, his people be uh, destroyed throughout human history, but so much more so seeing the glory of God. Legan Duncan says in the Bible, intimacy with God, closeness with God always leaves a mark. And so Daniel says, I hear the sound of his words. And as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell down deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Just, you ever stop and think about how amazing it is that we have a copy of God's word? Think of all of the things that Daniel had to go through to give us this book. Just even this encounter. Probably woke up with a big bruise on his head because he just falls over right onto his face. The authors of scripture had to go through a lot to give us the word of God and we should be filled with gratitude. So three questions that just pop up out of this text to interrogate our hearts this morning. Number one, what is your reaction when you hear of God's people not doing what God has said? Is it like Daniel, mournful, sorrowful prayer, and then action? 
Number two, do you believe and marvel in the reality that God answers prayer? If you do, you will pray more, more often, more expectantly and filled with much more gratitude as you do. And finally, number three, what's your attitude regarding the glory of God? What's your attitude regarding God's glory? What do you make of God's glory? How do you understand it? But we began our time by asking why this long introduction? We're only halfway through it. Next week, the the verses next week are just incredible. I mean, this book is just amazing. But these these last sections are just mind-blowing. So we we have to ask ourselves, why this long introduction leading into the last vision? We don't really need it. Why is it there? And I think that we now have half of the answer. I think we have part of the answer. I think we have the fundamental piece of the puzzle of the answer for why there's a prelude to the next prophecy. This prelude is here to remind us that the book of Daniel is all about the glory of God. It's not about timelines. It's not about end times. It's not about graphs or prophecies. It's definitely not about math, praise the Lord. It's about the glory of God. And I think we can leave the end of chapter nine with kind of a technicality over us and trying to figure out in our mind the timeline and figure out when the events are gonna happen and long for those events. But this book isn't about events. This book is about Christ. It's about the glory of God weighing heavy on us. And so I think God knows that we as fallible people will get sucked into the little things and the little details. And we're going to make big about those little details instead of making big about who God is. And so before we go to any other form of historical understanding or prophetic timelines, God wants us to press pause and say, do you feel the weight of my glory hanging over CBC? Because that's what this book is about. But the glory of God, which is the holiness of God on display, right? The holiness of God. Remember Isaiah chapter 6? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. He doesn't say his holiness. He says the whole earth is filled with his glory. It's filled with the physical manifestation of the holiness of God. Glory is God's holiness going public, going on display. And when we see that holiness, we as sinful people, we look at that holiness and we spurn it, and we say, every time we sin, that's not enough to satisfy me. In fact, I don't like it. I don't think it's glorious. I want something else. Sin is any time that we say, God, you're not good enough. And this text is telling us God's more than enough. Therefore, God's glory is terrifying because we constantly say to God, you're not enough. Just like Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and John, we are undone in the presence of God's holiness. We stand as condemned sinners in the presence of a sinless, holy creator. And yet, this is the unbelievable nature of the gospel. The very glory that we have spurned, that we've rejected, that we say, I don't want to be close to it. I don't want to be near it. I want my sin and I don't want you. That very glory that terrifies us is what God uses to save us. That very glory is what God uses through the gospel by sending Jesus to die for us. Jesus who always loved the glory of God the Father. He goes to the cross and he dies as if he had spurned the glory of God for his entire life. And he dies on the cross, bearing our punishment, bearing our penalty, 
And then he rises from the dead and he gives us a new heart. And this new heart that now beats for him, loves God's glory, treasures God's glory, wants more of God's glory. So it's the glory of God that we're terrified of. And then it's the glory of God manifest through Jesus that our eyes are opened up to 2 Corinthians 4 that now we treasure and we love. It is that glory that Jesus Christ left behind in order to win for us a perfect record of righteousness. And it is that glory that we long to finally see with our own eyes in the presence of the Father on that last day. Brothers and sisters, the book of Daniel is all about the glory of God. And that's why this prelude is a necessity as we come to the end of this study to remember this book is all about God. Father, thank you so much for your word that does land heavy on us because it shows us the grandeur and the glory of God. We are undone in your presence. And even as we prepare to partake of communion, we realize the glory that these elements symbolize and we realize the glory that they are allowing us to be satisfied in. It's, it's a glory that we have hated. It's a glory that even this last week, even today in our sin, we have said, no, I am choosing a lesser glory to be satisfied by. And yet, just like your word has told us this morning, your table, the last, the, the, the Lord's Supper, your table before us today is reminding us and preaching to us that you are more than enough to satisfy. You have more than enough glory to offer. And so we, like the Syrophoenician woman in the gospel of Mark, come before and you say, can we just have a crumb a crumb falling from the table so that we just receive a, just a tiny sliver of your glory and it will be enough. We confess our sin that we spurn your glory. We confess our sin that we fight against it. And we want to cherish and treasure the glory of God in the face of Christ right now. So help us to do that now as we partake of communion, as we prepare our hearts to partake. And may your glory rest on our hearts and our minds with grandeur, with the weightiness that it deserves. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.